All right. One, two, three. Good. Levels. Hey there. This week I talked with an old friend, Damon Tabor. Damon's a scribe whose exploits have taken him to Crimea to hang with an ultranationalist Russian biker gang, the Amazon with wildcat gold miners, and Liberia with war criminal turned evangelists, General Butt Naked. Damon's work has graced the pages of Harper's, Wired, Outside, The New Yorker, and Rolling Stone, where a feature he wrote inspired the documentary Cartel Land. In classic hipster fashion, Damon lives in Brooklyn with his hound dog, Gus. <laughs> what connects these stories for you, man? I mean, did you... seems like you were a scribe, born scribe. Your dad writes. Tell me a little bit about what kind of writer you wanted to be. Um... I don't think, like a lot of writers, like I don't think I knew early on what kind of writer I wanted to be. I think I knew that I wanted to write, but I didn't have much sense of like what that would look like specifically. Um, I mean, I remember like when I was a kid, my dad was a magazine writer. He was a freelancer for a while, and then he was a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. And so when I was a kid, like I remember him, you know, typing on an actual typewriter and I could hear the clickety-clack of, of the keys. And then I remember him going off on assignments for, um, you know, he was more of an outdoor adventure guy than I am and so he would go off on these assignments to, like, climb a big mountain in Alaska or do, like, go boar hunting, stuff like that. Um, and so, like, pretty early on, I think he set a kind of a template for me. Like, I knew that that world existed. I knew that it was fun. Um, at least it looked like fun. And... I probably wanted to do something like that. You know, I think like a lot of writers, I probably wanted, you know, considered dabbling in fiction, I think for a while, and thought about, you know, trying to write poetry. Uh, realized pretty quickly I was just awful at poetry and not very good at fiction. Um, and at a certain point, um, I don't know, I mean, I spent most of my 20s like trying to, you know, knowing I wanted to be a writer in some way, but like, basically just traveling around the United States doing weird shit. Um, going to, like, I worked with wolves in Colorado, this, like, wolf camp for a while. Um, I took a train around the country. Uh, I built hiking trails in New Hampshire. Like, I did, I wasted a lot of time doing really fun things that seemed to me sort of intrins intrinsically valuable in some way, but didn't necessarily end up on a, looking on a resume like anything worthwhile. You were doing your Jack Kerouac quest. I, I was doing a Jack Kerouac thing. I read a ton of Edward Abbey. Um, a lot of Aldo Leopold was like really into that stuff. Um, but you know, I would just like go sit on a rock somewhere and like contemplate nature. I was like that type of person. It was pretty obnoxious. Did you have dreadlocks? <laughs> I did not. I was never a hippie. Um, you know, but then that also means that you're, you know, I did that stuff for good number of years and then of course that means you're being like a bartender or a waiter um which is you know not doesn't have much of a, a long shelf life uh and so you know i realized at a certain point i just had to make a move and so as you know because we were there together i you know went to the, applied to the j school um and then uh and then went there for a year and um you were pretty old when you got out. You were like 32 and you went <laughs> interned after that, which is crazy. Thank you. I was 30. 30. Um, yeah, I was 30. Um, not the, Yeah, I did. I went got an internship at uh, Outside Magazine uh, as a fact checker. And in retrospect, um, you, know, I get, I, uh, you know, I get contacted by younger journalists, not a lot, but you know, semi-regularly, and you know, asking for advice. Um, and in retrospect, knowing what I know now, I... I you know, I tend to advise them like between spending fifty thousand dollars on the J school, 
um, or trying to get an internship in a magazine. I go, you know, right. I advise the latter, just because I learned not much of use about the magazine world at Columbia, but at the at the internship, um, you know, you just learn the trade. You learn how how they think, how it breathes, what the yeah. institutional culture is. Yeah, and sitting in there on a pitch meeting, like understanding how that process works, understanding where like a story peg is. I, like I didn't know any of that. Um, and so that was really valuable. Uh, so, but then I, you know, then I finished up and did a year there. Realized also, um, this was really clarifying that I did not want to be an editor. Mm. Um, you know, having seen that up close, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be able to, you know, set my own kind of compass points. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the universe's way of saying uh, you're not being raw enough. <laughs> Get real. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, what did you have to outside? Um, I. S- yeah, I started pitching. Uh, I built. I got some clips when I was working at Outside, so I had a good in there. Um, you know, I started pitching stories to a couple other magazines, Wired, uh, National Geographic, Adventure, when they were still uh, when they were still alive, and you know, basically started getting a little bit of clips here and there, some clips here and there. Um, what was your first story that you did for them as a full feature after your fact checking for Outside? I actually didn't do a feature. My first feature was actually for Harper's. It was the gold, the gold story, mm-hmm. um, and so you know the you know sort of as you mentioned, like that was uh, these like after the housing crisis in two thousand and eight, the price of gold skyrocketed um, for a number of reasons. But whenever that happens, it sort of kicks off this um, you know this 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 knock on effect of illegal gold mining around the world because it suddenly becomes like a very lucrative profession. So like. South Africa, French Guiana, Brazil, all these places, uh, illegal gold miners were kind of going into these countries and, um, you know, just in, in a lot of cases, um, mining gold in a way that's pretty, you know, this is environmentally uh, destructive, but in some ways they were also the easy villains because they were sort of bit players in this larger, you know, this larger drama. Um, so anyway, so I, you know, I, I dug into the story a little bit, um, and I don't, it really, it ticked a lot of boxes for me. Uh, it was in a far away place that nobody knew anything about. Like French Guiana is this sort of vestigial uh, remnant from um, France's colonial days and like not even the French know a whole lot about it. Um, and you know, there's wildcat gold miners and then at, that, at a certain point um, Sarkozy had decided to send in the military to run the, run the miners out of the, out of the country and back into Brazil. Um, so it had an element of I don't know, crime and law enforcement things that I'm, you know, pretty interested in. Uh, so anyway, I, you know, I, I wrote a pitch. I spent a long time on it and I sent it to Luke Mitchell at Harper's and he greenlit it, which to me now in retro- retrospect seems insane. Yeah, it's an ambitious piece, man. Because it's first. like, yeah, I mean, you know how it is. Like I had never written a feature before. Uh, I much, especially had never written a feature that, were, you know, would require like, fixers and translators and like incredibly difficult logistical planning to get into this the middle of the Amazon jungle and then security issues like I hadn't dealt with any of that stuff how did you that was one of my questions is, is, is how did you how did you get in there I mean the, the first opening scene is this beautiful sort of Conrad-esque I think you actually ripped off a Conrad reference there in your lead didn't you no no <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not intentionally but maybe okay. <laughs> but you know you're on the you're on the what do they call the boats the Grand Paros the, the uh, pirogues the parodes, yeah. and you're kind of you're going upstream with supplies to to reinforce these uh, 
these outposts, mining outposts. How did you figure out how to, the logistics of that, especially somebody who'd never done foreign reporting? I mean, I didn't know really what I was doing at that point, so I didn't do a whole lot of pre-planning, which is, you know, of course, over time what you learn how to do, and, you know, you learn to talk to fixers and sort of get a read on, like, what the landscape's going to be, what the security's going to be, all those things. I didn't really do a whole lot of that at the time because I didn't know that I had to do it. I mean, I knew that that trip was going to be um, difficult, uh, physically just because we had to get into these really remote parts of the Amazon that were inaccessible uh, by foot. You know, you had to go in by boat and then another boat and then hike and then another boat. And so honestly, like a lot of that, you know, I hired a, I hired a fixer um, from here and then when I got over there, you know, a lot of it we just kind of went, we felt our way forward step by step. You know, we would go from one town to the next and talk to people, figure out when these guys were going to send like a... Uh, a caravan, I guess, but a, uh, I don't know, flot- a flotilla or whatever of pirogues upriver with all the supplies. And then, you know, we would just t- stay there long enough to gain some trust, uh, talk to the right guy, figure out how much we'd have to pay him, um, and then go upriver. And then we'd get to like a mining camp and they wouldn't trust us either. Uh, so we'd stick around there for a couple days and, you know, try to gain their trust. And then we just kind of went step by step by step by step. I, honestly, at that point, I think I didn't, I was so naive, I didn't know enough to know that. I would how hard it could potentially be to carry a story off like like that. I mean, I had no template, so I knew it would be difficult, but I don't think that I knew how difficult. Um, so I think I was f- pretty overconfident and naive. <laughs> just, you know, I just thought, like, I'll be able to pull this thing off somehow. Um, and, you know, thankfully we we did, but obviously, like, if you want to, if you're going to pitch a gold mining story, like, the central focus of the story is going to be a gold mine, and uh, like, it took f-ing forever, honestly, to get somebody to show us because we would end up in these gold mining camps, and they all thought, uh, for whatever reason, like, they all thought the photographer and I were part of the French military, um, so they didn't trust us, they wouldn't talk to us, and then, you know, I thought at a certain point, like, we're just going to have to not have a gold mine in a gold mining story, which is pretty deeply problematic. Um, and then, you know, I think we were getting near the end. We were starting to run out of money. Um, we'd been there for a while at this one camp, and we just ha- had not been having much luck. And I talked the photographer into, you know, throwing on our backpacks and seeing if we could just go find one on our own. Because we knew they were all around us. Like, we knew we would see the evidence of, you know, they were getting supplied. We would see supplies going up. Um, you know, sometimes you could hear the engines of the, of the gold mine, uh, gold mining pumps. So we knew we were there and I was like, let's just go out and see if we can find one. Um, and I think, I don't know, we got, we got like a mile into the, into the, the jungle. And I think that the people in the village we had just left had some kind of committee meeting and decided that they would rather not have, um, you know, two gringos die around them, which would probably bring more law enforcement attention that they, than they were comfortable with. And it was probably just better for them to show us a gold mine so they could get us the f*** out of there. Um, so they sent a guy to, to, to lead us in, and we eventually met a guy who was uh, incredibly nice and accommodating and showed us his gold mine, and you know, then we got out of there. So your recipe is uh, hubris, <laughs> overconfidence, <laughs> ignorance. Right. Put yourself into a stupid place. Naivete. You, know, you can rely on the kindness of strangers. Uh, it w- I mean, it was then. You know, I've, I've definitely learned a lot since then. Um, 
you know, certainly I understand the value now of like pre-planning um, in a way that I just didn't know how to do then. Uh, so I do a lot of that now, um, you know, as we all know how to do, you know, it's like you find a fixer who a friend of yours is, has worked with and that you trust and you get a lay of the land. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of the places like that I've gone to are not they're a little bit tricky in terms of security, but they're not, it's not like frontline combat reporting, you know? I think like in America particularly, we have this sense that like all of Mexico is dangerous. Most Americans do, not all, but most. Or like all of uh, Eastern Ukraine is a war zone. But the thing that you realize over time is that like, it's not, it's not that way. The danger isn't monolithic. You know, you can, you can move sort of through these archipelagos of safety, you know, if, if you have the right information and the right people to kind of guide you through. Um, so I certainly learned to do that a lot better. I think the second feature I did, though, uh, was in Afghanistan. And I knew a little bit more at that point. But at that, with that story, I was at the mercy of this guy who was, like, leading tourists around Afghanistan in, a, in an unarmored minibus. And so I was sort of, it was a profile about him. And so I was sort of at the mercy of how he planned the trip and how, you know, how in-depth or not his advanced planning was. And it wasn't. He didn't speak any local languages. He didn't talk to anybody. He didn't have a fixer. And it was really, you know, in, in, in retrospect, like, terrifying. And, you know, his method of figuring out which road to take or which direction to go in was basically to, like, pull into the local tea house. And since he didn't speak the local languages, uh, sort of pantomime with somebody, like a waiter, you know, like you said, or just, a, you know, a local person, and, you know, make the sign for a gun and be like, gesture up the road and be like, is this okay? And, you know, you hope something didn't get lost in translation. <laughs> but even if it didn't, that was, it's such a, um, it's a pretty carefree way to, to try to travel around Afghanistan. Um, so anyway, uh, he did, yeah, I, we didn't get shot up. We had some, you know, we had some dodgy calls, um, but we got out of there fine. And then he, I think last year, uh, he was running a caravan through some part of Afghanistan. Uh, I don't remember where, and, and, and they got shot up. He's, and then I think some of the other people that were on the trip, there was a little bit of uh, adventurism that, you know, I, I don't know that they had thought a great deal about what they were actually doing. Um, you know, for me, the one person on that, that trip that was, was truly remarkable was uh, this woman named Beatty, who I will always always remember, uh, partly because I was, it was self-serving and I was absolutely terrified on certain parts of that trip. And so I, I had this like crazy, uh, I had this harebrained theory that like, if I attached myself to her, uh, you know, she was this 75 year old Indian woman, uh, who just emanated sweetness and joy. And I was like, not even the Taliban would harm this woman, which is absolutely, you know, it's a ridiculous assumption. But I thought, like, all right, if I attach myself to this woman, maybe I'll be okay. Um, but she was also just incredibly humble and respectful and sweet and, and um, I think, aware of what she was doing and where she was traveling. Um, and she just had this, wonder, like, this great philosophical attitude about sort of, like, if I... You know, if I die here, then that's just sort of the way it was meant to be, which wasn't a philosophy that I necessarily ascribed to, but I appreciated it, you know, and it was, um, yeah, she was just, I, I found her remarkable, and so I really, like, stuck close to her through the whole trip. You do sort of zero in on, on types who mm-hmm. have that sort of frontier quality, for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of the Mendocino County pot sheriff. Mm-hmm. Um, what draws you to the story in that regard? I, you know, I, I honestly 
I mean, I can tell you what I find captivating about a story, um, and it's always some element of crime, black markets, illegality, people operating on the margins of, of society. Like, that stuff, to me, is infinitely captivating. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting because, because like, intellectually, these things, you know, these markets, these black markets, these syndicates, these criminal enterprises, like we think we tend to think of them sort of monolithically, like it's just one large violent organization. But then once you start to drill down, whether it's, you know, a cartel in Mexico, whether it's gold miners in French Guiana, whether, you know, whatever it is, you understand that it's not that simple. You see that it's not that simple and you understand, I think, that the people that are involved in it are all being pushed and pulled by a variety of reasons. Um, they're not all bad people. Um, they're, it's much more complicated than we tend to think. And so I find that picking that apart and like seeing who's in there and understanding that motivation for what they're doing, I find all that, uh, infinitely captivating. Um, I don't know. I, I was really like the, you know, the outdoor adventure stuff and, and like environmental reporting, like that was initially kind of where I thought I'd end up. Um, but then, you know, in the last several years, it's been like nothing but, you know, crime and cartels and, you know, stuff like that. And so I don't really know. I mean, I don't know why I'm drawn to it, uh, but I, I find the dark infinitely captivating. What, uh, what are the tips of the trade that you've learned from, uh, from, from what should a young freelance magazine writer who wants to do that sort of ambitious work know? You know, the thing I try to do with stories and the thing that I try to do uh, in conversations with the younger younger journalists is tell them to like think a little bit strategically about like w- what stories they're going to pick and then how you can get the most longevity out of them so if you write a magazine article that could potentially be a documentary or a feature film script or you know whatever it is like try to think sort of beyond the you know just the article when it comes out because the finances of this th- business are so often perilous and difficult um, that I feel like you kind of have to. And like even the old model of like, you know, magazine writer does a couple features and then churns out a book. I mean, you know, the book publishing business is going through the same shit. So it's like you're not guaranteed any, um, you know, great success if you go that route either. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, I choose to believe I th- that the basic function of this thing that we're doing, like a storyteller and a reader, like that will stay the same. And it's the, the mechanism in between that'll probably change over time, but maybe that's totally self-delusional. I don't know, because I have to believe that. Otherwise, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, too old to do anything else. Um, well, so talk about your transition. Uh, now you're doing, you're, you're open produce documentaries. How did that come about? Uh, I did a story for Rolling Stone about four years ago now, I think, uh, about a guy down on the border in Arizona, uh, Named Naylor, and he was a really fascinating guy. He was um, he was a, a former he was a former contractor, and he had some some military experience. Contractor in the sense of building contractor, not military contractor. Um, and you know, he'd lost his job. The recession had hit. He lost his job. A lot of that, um, you know, he he tended to blame on um, uh, you know people who were coming across from Mexico and working for lower wages than he was. Anyway. So he basically grabbed an AR-15 at a certain point, decided to go down uh, to this compound he bought uh, on the, right on the border with Mexico, and decided to like start manning his own armed patrols and like you know rounding up 
uh, illegal migrants and you know drug smugglers. And he was like, I'm just going to go take this into my own hands, vigilante style, and make a difference. Uh, and so he turned up in a couple of like federal classified federal reports that got leaked online somehow through like one of the anonymous file dumps. And so I found him in there and just was really like really immediately intrigued. Um, hit him up and took a little while for him to warm up to me and say, okay, come out and you can, you can spend some couple days with me, but he, he eventually did. How did you did. do that? I mean, how did you negotiate that? You've got some kind of good old boy in you and, uh, <laughs> and that must've helped. But, but how do you negotiate that space between the sort of, uh, Janet Malcolm, uh, every journalist is a scheming manipulator and, uh, and trying to be a decent human being. Yeah, I don't believe in the Janet Malcolm thesis. I mean, of course, it all depends on who you are as a reporter and how you represent yourself to people. But, I mean, to me, that's such a, a sweeping generalization. Like, it's... I, I don't buy it, and I, I don't try to, you know, sort of... Uh, I, don't, I don't live by it. Um, I, you know, with somebody like him, I was... I mean, he, I don't know, he, he would probably argue, because I know he was not uh, super, super happy with the final product and actually threatened to kill my family in, in Arizona... <laughs> Which I don't have any family in Arizona, so... Say that again, for the record. <laughs> uh, I don't have any family in Arizona. Got it. Yeah. Um, I try to be pretty upfront with people. Um, you know, with him, I reached out, I think I found him on YouTube, uh, and he was immediately, he was, he was initially very distrustful. Uh, I thought, he also thought I was like some kind of scheming federal agent undercover and, you know, was going to take him down because I think he'd just been raided by feds a couple months before for... I believe threatening to plant IEDs along the border to blow people up. Uh, so he was a little, he was, he was pretty wary. Um, so we just, we went back and forth for a while. Um, and then, you know, at a certain point, I think I got him on the phone and I said, you know, I think what you're doing is worth talking about and it's worth exploring. And I just love to hear sort of who you are and why you're doing it and what your take sort of on the world is. Um, so, you know, that was enough. And so I went down there and I got it, uh, got access to him and we just hung out for a couple of days and ran around in the desert with, uh, him and his, a couple of his, uh, his guys. But I did try to be pretty honest with him on a number of occasions, uh, cause I was out there for a while and I, you know, there was a lot about his politics I found pretty reprehensible, but I liked him as a human being. I found him just kind of a fun guy to drink a beer with and, you know, smart in some ways and just enjoyable person to talk to. You know, so at a, certain, a couple certain points, it'd be clean. it felt to me like we were kind of edging beyond that boundary of reporter and uh, person who's being reported on. Um, and so a couple, there were a couple times when I said, you know, we were talking about just the story and the process, and I think I told him, like, look, there are definitely going to be people who don't agree with what you're doing, and there's going to be parts of the story that you're not going to be happy with. Um, and that's just kind of, you know, kind of is what it is. And it was sort of a way to, like, brush him back um, and sort of keep that relationship a little bit distant. Did that work? Do you feel like you got it? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, he did threaten to kill my family once the story came out. I don't think that threat was serious. I mean, I should say that he was just blowing off steam. You know, one of the, one of the things that happened was with Naylor, we went out on a patrol, we got lost, it was dark, and so he, we were right on the Mexican border, and so at a certain point, like, he convened, like, a group huddle with his guys, and he was like, 
you know, we can keep going the way we're going and it'll probably be like dawn by the time we get home or we can cut into Mexico uh, and then, you know, take a shortcut and then come back into the U.S. and we'll be there in like an hour. Um, And they all agreed to do it and then uh, Naylor wanted it off the record and so I had to make like this super hasty decision on the fly like, this is obviously a great scene. You have a platoon of armed, heavily armed guys like crossing into sovereign Mexican territory. And it's like, you obviously don't want that to, you know, go off the record. But I, I just had to make an on the fly decision that like, hopefully I, if I say no, then we're not going to do it. Uh, and then if I say, okay, let's, we can leave it on, you know, off the record, then um, I'll have at least a 50, 50 chance of being able to talk him back into letting it go on the record. And so that's what we did. And then, that's what happened. We had the conversation and after a little bit of back and forth, he said, you know, okay, we can do it. Um, and then fast forward, we got to the fact checking process with Rolling Stone. Um, and he just kind of denied that the whole thing had happened. You know, it was strictly off the record. You know, there was no, no agreement made. Um, you know, I think I even, I, I had it on audio. So it was like unassailable evidence that we'd have this conversation, but you know, those kinds of decisions in the field, I mean, are, I don't know. I find like I run into that stuff, uh, pretty pretty frequently mm-hmm. you know and you just have to make these decisions about like alright how am I going to handle this I mean like I've been working on this documentary for the last year um, about the opioid epidemic and at one point we were shooting with this young woman uh, who was pretty deep into her addiction um, she didn't have any money she was living in this really squalid dirty motel room um, and so she started getting on um, backpage.com which is you know generally a platform for prostitution. And she said, uh, she, you know, she got on there, she posted a photo and, um, you know, had a guy, and then within an hour had a guy like en route to the motel. And so she was like, you guys got to get out of here. Uh, and also can you go buy me some condoms? <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, what do you do in that situation? You know, I don't know. What would you, I mean, it's like you have to make these, like a hasty, hasty decision. It's like, you know, you are injecting yourself into that situation. Um, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, she's going to do it. She's going to do this either way. Um, so, you know, at the very least, like I can offer some protection, you know, I'm not going to make it worse. I don't know. I mean, the, the doc world is, one of the things I really like about it is it's, it's been really interesting just to sit down and you know hear, learn from people who have been doing this for a couple of years and just think about story in a different way and think about characters in a different way and you know learn just a different way of storytelling um, you know and then you know as you know this too like freelancing is you know oftentimes can be a pretty um, solitary profession you know it's typically like you and then you're in the field with a photographer and then you come home and then you just you know you're in front of your computer for 12 hours a day for six weeks or something and like you know that can be pretty pretty solitary um, and you know there's something really nice about going out on a shoot with like you know a DP and a sound guy and you know spending you know 12 hours in a, a trap house where like heroin's going out the door and you know and then, you know, getting home at the end of the, getting back to the hotel at the end of the day and having a beer and just, like, sharing uh, the experience of that crazy thing that you just did with a couple of people and, and kind of processing it and, you know, 
just going through it. And, you know, I like that. I really, I really enjoy that process, that part, like just the processing um, and the decompressing, which is not something like that you typically get to do on, for me, at least on the print side. Like I come home from a, a story assignment and like, I'll take the dog up to the park and like sit in the grass with a bagel for an hour and like read the New Yorker or something. And like, that's kind of my decompression. Um, but this is like, it's kind of happening in real time. And I don't know, it's just, I, I really enjoy it. It's nice. It's like a really, um, there's a, there's an aspect of the of being part of a team that's pretty appealing because, um, you know, one of these I don't know I have a working theory too that like most journalists are either um, were were only children or uh, you know moved around a lot as kids, and so they're comfortable kind of in that space of being the outside observer, and so you know that is sort of one of the essential skills sets for being a reporter. And so you get really comfortable in that and, you know, it's a necessary thing to do. And it's also really nice to break out of it, you know, and be part of a team and, you know, uh, just work on a project together. You know, the downside, though, is, like, you don't have as much editorial control. Like, you're just a kind of, one, you're one voice among many in a chorus about, like, how the story should be shaped and, like, how this thing should be at the end of the day. Um, and that, that part has been, you know, not difficult, but like a little bit challenging just to kind of realize, like I'm only, uh, just a little cog in this, in this greater wheel. Um, and then just in terms of like style and communication, there's a difference. Like we, and I think like we talk to an editor, we turn a story in and then the editor reads it and the editor comes back to you and says like, this is garbage. This is shit. This needs to be changed. You need to refashion this whole section. And like, there's a very brutal, I don't know, like economy. Uh, to the way they deliver information. And like, you know this too, now like the the movie business and the documentary world is a little bit different. There's like this, there's a lot more um, kabuki, I think, that goes in, goes into it and people are a little more circumspect. Uh, so I've kind of, it's taken me a little while to sort of learn the language of the trade, you know, um, and figure out, you know, to what extent, and just how to navigate it. And like, to what extent I, I need to navigate it. Um, so yeah. So what was your role in Cartel Land when you were when you were film? Which which scenes were you part of? Like what were what were you doing? Uh, early on, I you know I I talked to Matt about the story. Like he just you know he he basically read it on a, uh, a subway I think mm -hmm. going into the city and you know and then he just called me up out of the out of the blue and said this you know I'm interested in making this into a documentary and so we met um, we talked about it and you know and then we got into production and initially it was going to be just kind of a a documentary version of the magazine article and just focus on these two guys who were, um, you know, patrolling the, the, the border with Mexico. Um, you know, and so I had a hand in that. I would I'd go out with Matt in the field, uh, you know, just, help, you know, sit down with him during interviews, uh, throw him questions, tell him what he should ask, um, you know, some logistical stuff. And then, you know, we'd come back and we'd look at footage and, you know, I'd give him notes, things like that. Like it was, I mean, it was, you know, pretty minor role. And then Matt very smartly realized like, uh, shortly into the filming process that there was a sort of parallel vigilante movement that was, you know, blowing up in Michoacan and it would be a really, um, pretty, pretty fantastic and perfect, like counterpoint to the vigilante movement on the U S side. So he, he jumped over on and started filming that. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have much of a role with that. Uh, I just, just helped on the U S side. In terms of just impact, like, you know, it feels like when you write a magazine piece, unless you're talking about it with your nerdy journo friends at a bar in New York, it mm -hmm. also feels like it disappears into the, into the abyss sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, was it what was that process like to to see this hit the screen and, and really get some like cultural yeah awareness? it's so different because you're absolutely right like I um, you know I feel like I'll, the great majority of the times you, you put out a magazine article and it's like it just it's like a, a stone dropping into a pond like it just sinks to the bottom and maybe you know you hear a little bit about it on social media or whatever um, you know, and then that, that's kind of it. I mean, I, for me personally, like I've never really subscribed to that, like the, you know, the sort of the maximalist idea of I'm the big impact journalist and the stories I'm going to do are going to change the world. I mean, honestly, the stories I chase, like I chase them for fairly selfish reasons, um, just cause they appeal to me in some fundamental way. Um, sometimes there's a really nice dovetail there, like with the ivory trafficking story. Um, I felt like, you know, maybe that did do some good and like maybe that did open some people's eyes to like actually how grave the situation uh, is but like I, I myself try not to get into that mindset of thinking like uh, you know my story is going to be you know groundbreaking in some fundamental way um, and I think that's just like for me a healthier men, you know mental attitude to take uh, set yourself up um, for uh, you know you can set yourself up for I think disappointment that way and um, you know and honestly like I said I mean I just like I to, to be perfectly frank like I chase this, the stories that I'm interested in and like I just find them appealing you know to me in some way and like I don't want to be disingenuous about that um, but when yeah but then so you know when Cartel Land came out I mean it obviously did like extremely well and you know racked up a bunch of awards at Sundance and then you know went up on Netflix and uh, you know and a few other places and so it was just I don't know it was the scope of like uh, attention and um, it just got people's attention in a way that I wasn't used to I mean I you know I, I didn't have a, a huge role in it so I don't take any credit for that I mean that was all you know that was all Matt and, uh, and the crew who who did most of that um, but it was you know it's it's amazing to see and then it you know I guess the other side to that is it, it gives me some pause about you know the state of sort of the magazine magazine long form magazine writing um, you know and what what the trend is over the the next couple decades I mean my great fear is like this thing kind of turns into like a boutique industry you know for like I don't know just you know people on the west coast and people on the east coast and it's just you know it really it just becomes sort of a boutique thing like you know pick artisanal pickling or whatever and uh, it really doesn't have any greater impact beyond that um to me to me that's a scary outcome what's your favorite story you've worked on honestly it's got it's the first one the the french guiana story um to me that was that was in a lot of ways the perfect long form piece for me i mean it was in a weird place in the world um it was uh involved criminality <laughs> um and it involved like this bigger sort there was this bigger story structure under it it wasn't just about like these guys who were digging up gold which in the jungle and destroying the amazon which is kind of how that story had been told like you could peel that layer back a little bit and figure out there was sort of a greater system in play which was like you know, the U.S. housing system, which um, had involved a lot of greed and a lot of impropriety and a lot of poor decisions, like, had sort of had been the initial trigger for this process. And you could kind of trace it all the way back to that, you know? And then you could trace the gold that these guys were digging up in the jungle, at least theoretically, trace it back to, you know, it, it going back to the United States or ending up on a gold market. 
and the other thing too is like it had a great uh, it had a great like um, sort of operating metaphor that you could stick on it which was like the search for uh, like El, El Dorado um, and that's pretty to me at least I found that's pretty rare you can find a story that has all of those elements um, and then the other thing too it was like I think you and I have talked about this maybe it was my first story and so you don't at that point have any sense of you don't have any real sense of like what the limits and the expectations are. Like you learn that stuff later. Like the deeper into the trade you get, you learn what just what the rules of the road are. But at that point, you don't really know. And so it's like this wonderful freedom, you know, this of just like I don't really know what's right and wrong, so I'm just going to kind of do what I feel like doing. Um, and I really, I really, th- I think back on that a lot actually. And I, I, I'm. I miss it, and I try. I, I try. I try. I'm trying to figure out a way to kind of keep that close and keep that element in the stories that I continue to write. And I don't know that I figured it out. It's hard because you do learn the older you get, and the more you get into this, like you just you just do learn what your, the expectations and the rules are. Um, and I think naturally you 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 end up adhering to them a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a real value to, to just. Um, keeping the process as pure as you can. Um, but it's really difficult. It's a really difficult place to get back to because you can't really, you know? You can never go back to being the, you know, the, the younger, inexperienced, sort of innocent that you were at that, on that first story. Like, you just can't. It becomes like more of an intellectual exercise. And I don't know how successful that will be. I, I rarely regret it except for the times of like extreme, you know, there have been ex- extreme financial uh, distress like th- those points where it's like well maybe it wasn't the best call <laughs> like maybe I should have like recalibrated some of my, my thinking at the time but generally um, w- with that exception like I feel I feel really fortunate to be doing this um, I feel like when people open up their door to you even if even if it's like a guy you know a mid-level distributor for a cartel um, who's you know doing bad things like whoever, whomever it is like wh- if somebody opens their door to you and grants you access. Like, I, f- I do feel a real sense of responsibility to that person. Um, I'm not going to tell the story that they're necessarily going to like, always, but I do feel that that is sort of a, um, a profound interaction that can happen. Um, and I, res- I, I, I respect it. Um, you know, and the other thing, too, is it's just, I mean, it's really fun, you know? Like, hop on a plane and, like, go to the middle of nowhere and tromp around in a jungle and, you know, meet really interesting people. I mean, uh, there aren't many jobs where you get to do that. So I try to keep the gratitude close. Even though you're a one-hit wonder with your <laughs> You may be right, man. It may be all downhill from there. I'm still looking for that perfect story. Um, and they're, they're tough to find. <laughs>